from Two Keto LLC. It's the Obesity Code podcast with Dr. Jason Fung and Megan Ramos. Each week, we bring you lessons and stories from the Intensive Dietary Management Program in Toronto, Canada. I'm Carl Franklin. And on the show today, doctors get bad advice too. The Obesity Code podcast is brought to you by 2Keto LLC, who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. And you can support our mission by making a monthly pledge, no matter how small, at patreon.2keto.com. Today's show centers around IDM patient and physician Anna Catherine Birch, who struggled with her weight all her life and finally realized that the dietary advice she thought would save her was making her sick. Anna Catherine, or AK as she likes to be called, is originally from South Carolina and still lives there today. So, you know, being in the South, everybody loves good fried food. Um, sweet tea, sweets, those kind of things. Um, so growing up, that was essentially my diet. We're all eating a lot more sugar than we really realize. That's Dr. Peter Bruckner, world-renowned Australian sports doctor and founder of the Sugar by Half campaign. The average Australian North American is having somewhere around about 15 teaspoons. I like talking about teaspoons of sugar because, you know, we talk about you know grams and all sorts of things. So everyone knows what a teaspoon is. So um, the figures are about sort of 16, 18 uh, teaspoons of added sugar a, a day. Um, teenagers are taking in even more, somewhere averaging uh, in the low 20s. So that's a lot of added sugar uh, per day. Um, the uh, the World Health Organization has uh, recommended a maximum of 10% of calories in sugar, and ideally it should be 5%. So that works out at about 6 teaspoons of, of sugar a day. When you think about, you know, there's a, a normal sort of small bottle of Coke that has about uh, 11 teaspoons of sugar. You know, it makes it pretty tough. And uh, in fact, I suspect most people uh, who are having a, an average breakfast have uh, exceeded their, their sugar average or their, their ideal sugar intake after the first meal of the day. I mean, if you think about it, you know, if you have a, a glass of uh, juice and then maybe a bowl of cereal and a, and a fruit yogurt and a, uh, and, uh, and a piece of toast with jam and, uh, and a cup of tea with a couple of sugars, I mean, you're probably up about 15 already. So uh, it's not surprising that, uh, that we're well over the, uh, the mark. So it, it, that's, a, that's a challenge, certainly, to reduce the, uh, the amount of added sugars. You've got to look carefully at labels because uh, the sugar will be there uh, in virtually every, uh, every processed food. So um, yeah, it's a real trap. So growing up, that was essentially my diet. I have to say that some of it was good in that I was able to eat homegrown vegetables. We had a garden in our backyard. Um, and so my palate for vegetables and good things was established ever since I was little. Um, but what we did have in addition to that was a lot of bread and sweet tea. So I lived off of sweet tea as a small child. I think that that's where my love of sweets and of carbohydrates actually started. The author Charles Mann, a friend of mine, a wonderful historian, uh, journalist, the way he put it in his book, 1493, he said, scientists debate among themselves whether sugar is an addictive substance or people just act like it is. That's Gary Taubes, an award-winning science and health journalist and author of best-selling books, including The Case Against Sugar, Why We Get Fat, and Good Calories, Bad Calories. And the way I think about it is if you've got kids, you don't need scientists to tell you whether or not sugar is addictive or whether or not it has a hold over your children that other carbohydrates or, you know, the finest French cheeses don't. AK grew up in a somewhat dysfunctional family, and as such, she used food as a coping mechanism. It was... Um somewhat kind of walking on eggshells. And so I think that I ran to food um, to comfort myself. And um, that's kind of the uh, coping mechanism that I learned as a little kid. 
specifically um, when I was in middle school and high school. Um, I had someone in my life who was mentally ill, and it um, took a toll on me. Um, you know, it was back in a day where mental illness was never talked about in society. I was in a small southern town or a smaller southern town then, and um, and so the best way for me to cope with it was to make myself feel better by with eating food, and specifically that was carbohydrates. This is pretty simple. You just this is basic endocrinology. So endocrinology is a science of hormones and hormone related diseases. This was worked out in the 1960s. It's true then, it's true today. Um so our fat cells are very well regulated. They don't just take up calories because we eat too much. They don't even know how much you're eating or how much you're exercising. They don't see the fat cell doesn't see that. But the fat cell has enzymes on its surface, these chemical molecules on its surface that want to take up fat from the bloodstream and store it, hold on to it. It has enzymes inside the fat cell that will break down fat so that it can get out of the cell and be used for energy. And so when you uh, eat a carb-rich meal, you secrete this hormone insulin, which basically controls this process. So the insulin signals the enzymes on the cell surface to what are called upregulate. Suddenly you have more of these enzymes and they can pull more fat into the fat tissue, into the fat cells. And it tells these uh, enzymes inside the fat cells that break down fat to, to shut down. So when insulin's elevated, your fat cells are accumulating fat. That's what they do. And then as insulin slowly comes down, the reverse happens. And now the fat cells can mobilize fat. So this hormone, this enzyme on the cell surface shuts down and this enzymes inside the cell that break down fat turn on. And now you're mobilized, you're breaking down the fat you store and you're mobilizing. And it's all pretty much regulated by insulin. Other hormones uh, work to get fat out of the fat cells. Uh, insulin is the only, the primary fundamental, at times the only hormone that works to get it in and to keep it there. And so insulin literally makes fat cells fat. And we are the, you know, the integral, the compendium of all our fat fat cells. That's it. So if our fat cells are getting fat, we're getting fat. And all the fat cell knows is that insulin is telling it to get fat, and the insulin's being secreted by the carbohydrates. So the carbohydrates, it's not that carbohydrates are necessarily converted to fat, although they are to some extent when we consume a lot of sugar, but the carbohydrates are telling insulin to go up, and the insulin is telling the fat cells to hold on to fat. And the greater the portion of the day your body is, uh, has elevated levels of insulin, the more fat you're going to store from day to day, the fatter you're going to be. As I got older um, in high school, of course, every high school kid wants to be a skinny, pretty girl. Um, and so I kind of interestingly stopped drinking sweet tea um, one day and I was just like, well, I'm not going to. I'm not going to drink sweet tea anymore. And surprisingly, I lost over 10 pounds over the next couple of weeks. After that, it kind of sparked a, I don't know, idea that I can lose weight because people were starting to pay attention to me, etc. Did you get that? Just by cutting out one source of sugar, sugary drinks, in her case, sweet tea, she lost over 10 pounds. Um, and probably about this time, I had to have been at least 200 pounds. That was around 1993 when AK was in 11th grade. I'm 5'7", and I have a bigger frame, so I actually carry my weight pretty well. People would come up to me and say, wow, you look good. What are you doing, et cetera? And, um, and I was like, I just stopped drinking sweet tea. So that kind of made me want to lose more weight. Back then, everybody, that I think that was kind of a height of the low-fat diet, um, and so I cut out all fat in my diet. 
Dr. Jason Fung explains where the recommendation to cut dietary fat came from. This recommendation didn't originally come from the sort of obesity world. This recommendation came from this sort of epidemic of heart disease that was beginning to be noticeable in the 50s and 60s. A lot of relatively young sort of middle-aged men were developing heart attacks. One of the sort of unrecognized things that you can see looking back uh, in time is that the percentage of the population that were smoking cigarettes ballooned out in the 1940s during World War II. And uh, at the time, in the 50s and 60s, nobody really understood that this was a very big risk factor for heart disease. In fact, the tobacco companies were very, trying very hard to uh, pretend that cigarette smoking did not contribute. So it played a big role, but nobody really knew the cause at the time. So they started looking around for causes and one of the things that seemed very intuitive was that the uh, fat in the blood was simply clogging up the arteries just like sludge in a pipe would clog up your pipe. It, it seemed to uh, make intuitive sense and was very vivid imagery. Turns out that sort of image is completely wrong and we understand that it's not simply the cholesterol, it's not the uh, fat in the blood, uh, the blockages of the artery are due to something called atherosclerosis which is in large part due to inflammation and a response to injury. So anyway, the dietary fat hypothesis began to take shape and so one of the things that was uh, very important uh, for people to do, we thought, was to cut out the fat in the diet. This uh, was not something that had ever been done before, sort of in the history of mankind. There were never any low-fat diets. Nobody had ever noticed that eating a lot of dietary fat made a difference in terms of health. Uh, in fact, the fattiest parts of the meat were often the ones that were most uh, treasured because it was more flavorful. People used to eat lots of butter and so on because it simply tasted good. As we wore on, uh, the low-fat diet hypothesis sort of gained momentum and as the obesity epidemic started to gain shape, they also started to blame dietary fat for obesity. Again, this was an idea that was completely new and there was no evidence behind it whatsoever. The only uh, sort of thing that they could throw out was fat was more calorically dense because you had to have a, a scapegoat for this sort of uh, heart disease epidemic and you needed to have a scapegoat for this obesity epidemic and hey, wouldn't it be convenient if they were both dietary fat. So by 1977, as we headed into the sort of controversy, uh, one side became very influential and the low-fat sort of uh, dogma won out. There was really no evidence that it actually played any role in either heart disease or obesity, but it didn't really matter. It sort of made intuitive sense, so therefore that's what it was. For weight loss, the low-fat diet worked for AK. I had gotten down to about 155 pounds my senior year in high school, um, which was about a size 8 to 10 for me. Great. Weight loss. But how did she feel? I was starving, actually. I was hungry all the time um, with my low-fat diet. Um, I would eat a lot of salads without dressing on them. I would eat um, vegetables and chicken that was not cooked in any good fats. Our body has very finely tuned satiety uh, pathways. That is, if you eat a food, your body needs to know how much to eat. Uh, it doesn't count calories. There are no receptors for calories. You don't say, okay, I drank a certain number of calories and I ate a certain number of calories. Therefore, I am now going to stop because I've reached X number of calories. Our body simply cannot measure calories at all. That's why we have artificial sweeteners and artificial fats and artificial all kinds of other stuff uh, that have zero calories. Those haven't really worked to reduce obesity either. If you look at dietary fat specifically, though, 
one thing that you can see is that it causes um, certain hormones to increase and one of the hormones that's very sensitive to uh, dietary fat is cholecystokinin so as you eat cholecystokinin goes up and it's one of the satiety hormones and it tells your body what to uh, that that you're full and you should stop eating um, these are very powerful so if you think about a time where you've really stuffed yourself like after Thanksgiving or after a big buffet you really can't go and eat some more um, you know another steak for example because it's it's really a very powerful you get nauseated uh, protein has the same effect so if you look at protein it's probably even more powerful as a satiety signal in terms of activating peptide YY and activating other things uh, such as incretins. So that's why a low-fat diet uh, can be very, very um, uh, low on the satiety sort of scale. If what you do is replace the dietary fat with a lot of refined carbohydrates, that is if you eat sugar and um, white bread sort of thing, a muffin, that's not going to activate your satiety signals. You simply don't have enough protein, you don't have enough fat, you're not activating your satiety signals. And this is one of the reasons that people who eat, for example, a waffle or a muffin for breakfast, those refined carbohydrates are absorbed very, very quickly. They've gone into your body and you haven't activated the satiety signal. So by 10.30, all of a sudden you're starting to get ravenous again. And then you go eat another low-fat muffin, for example. And it, the whole cycle starts over and over again. I got in fights with my mom all the time. Um, she actually in the end probably had the correct way of looking at foods and that I needed fat, my brain needed fat for development, that I needed fat for satiation um, and I would fight with her all the time. I would tell her she didn't know what she was talking about because everything you would see on TV would be low fat do everything low fat and of course you know that what with all the products that you would find on the shelves low fat basically they took the fat out and put carbs in there are really only three macronutrients fats carbohydrates and protein the processed food industry gave the people what they wanted low fat foods they removed fat from crackers cookies snack foods salad dressings all kinds of food but when you remove a macronutrient, you have to replace it with another. So guess which one they increased? Right, carbohydrates, sugar. So now, not only was your favorite salad dressing low in fat, it was also higher in sugar. And that's how the low fat craze became a high sugar craze. When I did go to college, of course, now I'm here on my own, um, and you know, you start doing college things, drinking beer, um, going out for pizza late night, um, those kind of things. And so the weight came dramatically back on again. Over my lifetime, I've definitely put more weight on. Um, I like to say my maximum fatness was 235 pounds. Just to be honest, you know, over the rest of my lifetime, so through college, through medical school, through residency, through fellowship, and even as, you know, my job now being an attending, I have yo-yoed back and forth um, with losing weight, gaining weight, losing weight, gaining weight. Regaining weight after going on a low-fat diet seems to be a pretty typical story. It can't be as simple as being more hungry, though. If you had the willpower to ignore your hunger signals while you were losing weight, why does all that willpower suddenly go out the window once you've lost it? Starting in the 70s and persisting to this day is the idea that we get obese because we are burning less calories than we're taking in. If you eat less and exercise more, you'll lose weight. And when you follow that advice and don't lose weight, it must be your fault. Dr. Fung tells us what is fundamentally flawed about the calories in, calories out model of obesity. The problem with that model for calories in, calories out really is that the uh, calories out part of things is 
likely the most important part of it, yet it's very, very hard to measure. Nobody wants to keep doing these sort of uh, metabolic studies where you go into a lab and they measure what you eat and what you poo and what you burn and all this sort of stuff. It's extremely difficult to measure. So they make the completely erroneous assumption that it stays stable. And we know that it doesn't. We know that the energy expended, the basal metabolic rate, can go up or down by 30, 40, 50%. In fact, that is the major problem. That is, if you look at studies that are done, detailed metabolic studies done on the biggest loser sort of contestants, we know their metabolic rate just sort of plummets. And therefore, that's why they don't lose weight even as they reduce the calories they eat. So the calories in, calories out model while it is uh, technically true, is almost entirely dependent on the calories out part of thing. And the calories in makes very little difference because the calorie, reducing the calories in often reduces the calories out. And the reason for that is that there's only two places that you can get energy from. And this is the uh, thing that is not well appreciated is that it's sort of a two compartment model. That is, if you look at the energy that your body wants to expend, the basal metabolic rate, suppose it wants to spend 2000 calories. Well, there's two different places that you can get these 2000 calories. You can get it from the food that you eat and you can get it from your fat stores. So the assumption is that if you eat 1500 calories, you will get 1500 from the calories. You'll make up the difference of 500 from your fat stores and your 2000 will stay stable and therefore you're going to lose a pound a week and then you're going to be skinny. If that was true, of course, we'd all be skinny because Almost everybody I know has done a calorie-restricted diet and it's almost never worked from anybody. And the key point is that your body sort of works like a railway switch. If you have a, uh, you know, a train track where you have a, a fork in it, you can only go one of two directions. And the body is much the same way. You can either take your energy from kind of the food that you're eating, or you can take your energy from your body fat, but you don't mix the two. You don't get some of this and some of the other. You either get it from one or the other. You have to switch tracks from you know track one to track two. And what's the determinant of that? Basically, the determinant of that is insulin. Anytime you eat food, assuming it's a blend of protein, fat, and carbohydrates, insulin is going to go up. As insulin goes up, you turn off fat burning. Uh, technically, we say that insulin inhibits lipolysis. That is, if insulin is high, your body senses that you are eating, and therefore there is no reason that you're going to burn your stores of energy. Those are for a rainy day when there's no food to eat. So you stop all your fat burning and you gain your energy from the food that you eat. When your insulin falls, that is when you're fasting, then that signals the body that you've stopped eating, no more food is coming in, and you need to get the energy back out from what you stored it in. And that's the reason that you don't die in your sleep every single night. Because your insulin falls, you switch over and you get your energy from your fat stores, your glycogen stores, and so on. So it's a well-run system, assuming that you keep your fed state and your fat state in balance. As you uh, become hyperinsulinemic, so if you um, eat constantly throughout the day, if you eat a lot of foods that are highly insulin stimulating, like refined carbohydrates, and particularly sugar, because it's going to contribute to fatty liver, which contributes to insulin resistance in the liver, which then contributes to elevated insulin levels all the time. Remember, that's the one thing that blocks fat burning is high insulin levels. So sugar in particular is very, very bad for you. So as you uh, keep your insulin levels high, you've switched over to this track where you can only get your energy from the food that you eat. So if you reduce the number of calories that you eat, but you eat all the time and keep your insulin levels high by eating all the time, eating um, refined carbohydrates, sugar, and so on, what that's going to do is that's going to say to your body, okay, well, turn off fat burning, leave your fat stores alone, Insulin is high, therefore you must get your energy from the food that you eat. 
If only 1500 calories are coming in, you can only burn 1500 calories. That's just the bottom line. So your body is forced to ramp down its metabolic rate. And this is the problem with so-called yo-yo dieting. As you start off, for example, burning 2000 calories, you go on a sort of ill-timed diet, um, you you turn down your metabolic rate to 1500 calories, then you eat 1700 calories because you're tired of it. And even though you're eating less, you're gonna gain back that weight. So then you do it again, you kind of do the yo-yo again. Then you eat say 1200 calories, but you're eating constantly, you're eating lots of sugar, you're eating lots of bread. Well, all of a sudden your metabolic rate now has to go down to 1200 calories. So you're feeling cold, you're feeling tired, you're feeling hungry, and you're not losing weight. And as you do this a few times, you keep going down and down and down until people's metabolic rate is very low. The good news is that the metabolic rate can go up as well. But again, the key determinant of that is insulin because you have to open up those stores of body fat for you to burn. Your body actually wants to burn more energy. It doesn't want to be cold all the time. It wants to burn that energy, but you have to have access to those fat stores. So you have to be able to let your insulin levels fall, which is why uh, insulin resistance, which causes this compensatory hyperinsulinemia, is really so critical for determining uh, what your me metabolic rate is. So no matter what kind of diet you think is going to work best for you, you have to lower insulin to lose body fat. The best way to do that? Cut carbohydrates. And I have tried every kind of method you can imagine. So I did the low-fat diet. I did the Atkins diet. I did Weight Watchers. Um, all of those different methods, um, and nothing ever really worked. Now, to be clear... All of these diets worked in that she lost weight, but she always gained it back. Interestingly, though, the Atkins diet was a little bit different. So I did that when I was a resident, um, which is probably around, um, let's see, 98. So somewhere in the early 2000s. And um, I did that probably for about eight months to a year, and I dramatically lost a lot of weight. Um, and again, that felt great. You know, people were paying attention to me. I'd gotten back down to a size 810. Um, and in the end, I, I felt like it was hard to continue that lifestyle um, because I was always on the go, and it was hard to always find something to be able to eat with a bunch of fat in it or high protein. AK wasn't particularly invested in the science at the time. Oh, at that time, not invested very much at all, to be honest. Um, you know, I was a resident. I was busy. I didn't really do any kind of research looking into literature um, or journal articles, those kind of things. I just knew that people who did Atkins lost a bunch of weight. And so I just did that. So, AK, did you ever think the Atkins diet was dangerous? Probably. Um, you know, I, I don't remember specifically thinking I'm doing harm to my body. But to be honest, after I came off of the Atkins diet and, of course, gained all the weight back and probably more, um, I was thinking to myself, God, that probably wasn't the correct way to lose weight. That probably wasn't very healthy for me. And I thought really what wasn't healthy more than anything was the yo-yoing, losing a whole bunch of weight, putting all the weight back on, plus some. So you weren't eating any carbs, right? If I ate carbs, it was completely in vegetables. Um, so I would stay away from sweets. I would stay away from bread products, anything that was breaded before being fried. I stayed away from fruit. I actually did stay away from fruit. So maybe it was ketogenic then? I kind of was doing a ketogenic diet, but with higher amount of protein. I went on the Atkins diet in the 90s, and uh, I was convinced I was going to kill myself. I felt terrible. Of course, that was before I knew anything about salt and electrolyte balance. And I think, had I known that, 
I might have stayed on it longer. Richard Morris, my partner in crime at Two Keto Dudes, also did Atkins. I went onto the Atkins diet myself in 2004 and stayed on the induction phase. And back then we were all eating a lot of protein. It was the all the meat you can eat diet and it wasn't a high fat diet. That would come later with the ketogenic diet. So AK, if Atkins was working for you, why'd you quit? Probably because I got lazy. Um, I started probably eating carbs. And then another thing that really bothered me about Atkins, and and I kind of had this a little bit with the ketogenic diet now, is I get very nauseous when I'm in ketosis. Um, I have pretty bad nausea. And so I would just feel sick all the time. And so at some point, I kind of, with the Atkins diet, just got sick of being sick, sick of being feeling nauseated all the time. This was also the reason why I dropped off the Atkins diet in 2006. I felt nausea a lot. And so I would eat carbs to kick me. I, I didn't understand what I was doing. I just know when I ate carbs, I wouldn't feel as nauseated. And so really what I was doing is kicking myself out of ketosis. I suspect the problem with my nausea may have had to do with not getting enough salt and having to deal with too many waste products from metabolizing protein. Oh, yeah. I totally was not doing salt. I wasn't taking magnesium. I was not drinking enough water. Um, all of those things. I didn't understand what the nausea came from. And because I wasn't looking into the science and I didn't have anybody helping me, um, like IDM, I had no idea why I was feeling that way. Um, and to be honest, even though I was a physician, it didn't occur to me to actually research it. I just was going about my everyday life. So when AK went off Atkins, she slowly gained the weight back and more. And then it was time for yet another diet. The last thing I tried was Weight Watchers. And again, I lost a large amount of weight. Um, that was probably about six years ago, five, maybe five years ago. Um, so I went from 235 to about 155, 160. Again, that was about a size eight to 10. Um, and I did that by just calorie restriction, um, you know, counting my points and, um, so that was probably about over a year, year and a half. And I met my future husband. And you know what happens when you fall in love, you begin to eat. After that, I just, my life got busy again, and it was not as easy to count points. Um, and so I kind of fell off that wagon as well and gained all the weight back, um, 235 pounds. So to recap, AK lost weight as a teenager on a low-fat diet, and it came back. In med school, she went Atkins and lost a lot of weight, and then nausea knocked her off, and she put all the weight back on. And finally, she did Weight Watchers and lost all that weight again, only to meet her future husband, and his life became more hectic. The weight came back again. So... It's really interesting. So I told you I'm a physician and I'm a mom. So out there in Facebook world, there are a lot of physician mother groups. And one of them that I was in is a physician mother's weight loss group. And um, it's full of physicians from every um type of medicine out there. And the only thing that really bonds us together is the fact that we're physicians and we're moms. And so everybody was harping on the book, um, obesity code and basically, um, high fat, low carb diet. And so that's when I started reading the book, um, obesity code and it made complete sense and so that basically is what kicked off the high-fat, low-carb diet for me and um, my new life of fasting. So did you go keto first or did you jump right into fasting? I did the ketogenic diet first. 
um, before I even did the fasting. And part of that was a, I needed to get myself off the carbs. Um, I'm, I, I like to call myself a carb addict. I, I honestly feel like I am addicted to carbohydrates. And so to try to fast um, with carbs in my body, I felt like that that was just not going to happen for me. So so I got myself off the carbs first. And, um, and that I had to go through detox, just like I was an alcoholic. So how were your first few days of keto? God, I was awful for about three or four days. I went through um, irritability. I went through fatigue. Um, I was achy all over. Um, Legit had flu-like symptoms. Well, surely you would have gone through the carb flu with Atkins back in the day, right? You know, it had been so long since I had done the Atkins that I don't necessarily remember going through the carb flu before. Um, But I also didn't expect it with Atkins just because I didn't know what I was doing. So if I did go through the carb flu, I'm wondering if I just thought it was an illness and had no idea that it was because I was detoxing myself from carbs. Um, I just, I don't remember that far back. But the difference this go around is that because I read the book, I knew also that I needed to try to um, decrease my protein amount and follow my macros. So I did a food diary, wrote down all of my food and kind of started looking at that. And I had just started doing that when I became a patient of IDM. How did you find out about IDM? So I would learn a little bit more about about this lifestyle, um, both on the Facebook um, group. And then also I started Googling um, Dr. Um, Fung and I saw IDM and how there is a, a way kind of program so you could somewhat be plugged into him and to Megan um, but not have to be an actual patient of his um, being since I'm in South Carolina um, this far away from Canada you know obviously I wouldn't ever be able to do that so I became a virtual patient. So when I first talked to AK um, she was in pretty good shape. That of course is Megan Ramos director of the Intensive Dietary Management Program. She has a history of polycystic ovarian syndrome, which we often coin as just diabetes of the ovaries. Um, but she was not diagnosed with diabetes. Um, she did have some weight that she wanted to lose, and she struggled for a very long time with just about every different diet in the book. She had previously tried the Atkins diet and she had a bit of um, keto flu. So keto flu, people start to feel nauseous, weak, dizzy, chilly. This time around with the ketogenic diet, the nausea is much more controlled. And I think too, with the fasting and teaching your body how to fast, that has also helped my body get used to the ketones. And so my nausea is much better controlled this this go around. Were you ever diabetic? So I never have had a problem per se with my blood sugar. Um, I was never pre or not never diabetic. I didn't have type two diabetes, anything like that that I know of. Um, and so I've never really followed my blood sugars um, per se, but I do have PCOS, and um, that was diagnosed probably about two years ago, two or three years ago. My sister also has it, um, and so. Of course, when I go to my doctor for that, he follows my hemoglobin A1C. Polycystic ovary syndrome, PCOS, is something that Dr. Fung sees a lot in overweight women. And this was identified uh, quite a few years ago, and it consists of three major problems. One is that these people have too much sort of masculine hormone, too much testosterone. The symptoms of too many androgens, or male hormones, in women include hair growth, male pattern baldness, excessive sweating, 
and acne. The other thing uh, is uh, difficulty with uh, menstruation. So some people get uh, poor menstruation. And the third thing uh, is polycystic ovaries. So ovaries uh, have a lot of cysts on them. So normally they develop follicles, uh, but they get too many and they don't develop properly uh, because of this sort of hormonal imbalance. PCOS can lead to infertility, where people try to get pregnant, but they can't. And then they spend thousands of dollars on in vitro fertilization and other therapies. So the question is, what causes PCOS? For a lot of uh, years it wasn't known, but uh, research sort of uh, towards the 90s and 2000s really pinpointed the fact that there was a uh, big overlap between obesity, type 2 diabetes, and metabolic syndrome in this. And so one of the things that was quickly realized was that a lot of these patients also had the associated insulin resistance. Insulin resistance is uh, something that is probably better thought of as hyperinsulinemia. That is, uh, the body develops resistance uh, based on high excessive levels that are persistent over time. That is to say, uh, if you have too much insulin, which is constant, then your body develops insulin resistance as a reaction uh, to this and as a natural protective response. If you listen to loud music with headphones, your hearing system compensates for the loudness by going slightly deaf. Loud music causes deafness, which causes you to turn up the volume. You can get the same sort of thing with insulin resistance. That is, if you eat a diet that is very stimulating to insulin and you eat it constantly, that is, you don't give yourself any fasting periods, you're eating kind of from the minute you get up to the moment you go to bed, then your insulin levels stay high, higher than normal, and much longer than normal, and your body tries to resist that by developing insulin resistance. Insulin resistance is a vicious cycle. Your cells become resistant to the signal from insulin to take up glucose, so the pancreas has to make more insulin to compensate, which leads to more insulin resistance. And it goes on and on. There are certain diseases that are caused by excessive insulin, and obesity is one of them. The other ones, uh, type 2 diabetes is caused by uh, excessive insulin. Uh, high blood pressure can be caused by excessive insulin. Uh, uh, you know, kind of an abdominal obesity, which is sort of the central obesity, which is weight gain, particularly around the waist, is uh, also one of these diseases. High uh, triglycerides and low HDL, which is the sort of quote-unquote good cholesterol, are also causes. So these uh, together collectively are known as the metabolic syndrome and metabolic syndrome is best thought of as a disease of hyperinsulinemia, that is too much insulin in the blood. There's a clear overlap between polycystic ovarian syndrome and the metabolic syndrome. So even in people who do not develop obesity, you can get manifestations of hyperinsulinemia. That is, we have type 2 diabetics who are not particularly overweight. For example, uh, many Asians on average develop type 2 diabetes with a body mass index around 24 to 25, which is actually in the normal range. So these people are not um, obese by weight standards, but if you look at them, you see that they carry a lot of abdominal obesity and that's the reason they get the type 2 diabetes, so another disease of hyperinsulinemia. The point here is that obesity does not cause PCOS. All of these various diseases that we know of as metabolic syndrome, diabetes, hypertension, hypertriglyceridemia, cardiovascular disease, obesity, these are all caused by hyperinsulinemia. And PCOS is also caused by hyperinsulinemia. The mechanism is that the hyperinsulinemia tends to cause uh, more um, production of the, the sort of androgens, the male hormones, and this then causes many of the manifestations of this, uh, of the syndrome, that is the, the excessive uh, hair growth, the acne, um, and the sort of male pattern features of PCOS. The, the excessive uh, androgens also impact the hormonal cycle because of course it depends on a balance of sort of male and female hormones and we have too many male hormones, your uh, cycles became thrown off and you can get infertility as a result. The cysts themselves are the result of insulin as a growth factor. 
So insulin is a nutrient sensor. It tells the body that there is food coming in, but these um, nutrient sensors are very, very closely uh, related to growth pathways as well because from an evolutionary standpoint your body doesn't want to grow unless it has adequate nutrients so if there's no nutrients coming in it will actually shut down all the growth pathways when insulin is plentiful it turns on all these growth pathways it's really a beautiful example of supply and demand when there's food your body turns on the growth systems when there's no food those systems are turned off same way you'd turn down the thermostat in your house in warm weather. The ovary is constantly producing follicles, which is part of normal egg development. It will uh, develop these things. But, but under sort of excessive stimulation of growth pathways, you get too many of these. And over time, these become cysts, and then you get these polycystic ovaries. One thing that happens with insulin resistance is that your glucose goes up. You may not quite get to diabetic levels, but as you bring your high insulin levels under control, your glucose levels should stabilize. Hemoglobin A1c, or HbA1c, is a three-month average of blood glucose. It measures the glucose that coats your red blood cells. Since the red blood cells only live for three months, any given sample reveals a three-month average. So let's check in with AK on how her A1c was doing. Since doing the fasting and the ketogenic diet, my hemoglobin A1c has dropped by a half a point um, to a point, and um, which is amazing, you know, that it's already started to come down on this diet, which made me very, very happy that I am working on my insulin resistance, even though I wasn't technically diabetic. I'm just now glad to be able to know the tools that I have learned to stop the cycle. And so I'm maybe preventing myself from getting diabetes in the future. Did you ever have any weak moments? I did. But you know what's really interesting? Of course, this is holiday season, right, or Christmas. And so there's a ton of cookies and those kind of things out there. And so I had one week moment um, where I ate some cookies for about two, three days. My energy changed dramatically. I went from being able to get up out of my bed at 7 o'clock in the morning or 6.30 in the morning without being tired, being able to go all day without taking naps, etc., to having to take an afternoon nap or just feeling completely exhausted when I got home. And that's when I really realized that the carbohydrates affected my system so much that it changed my energy that much in several days. Um, it just was amazing to me, the difference between the two. And I guess I never really realized when I was doing before, when I was on the ketogenic diet and was doing fasting, I guess little by little, my energy came back and it happened so slowly, I guess I really didn't realize how much energy I actually had until I fell off that, the, you know, the wagon, just that little bit of time to make a difference. So I told Megan, I never, ever want to <laughs> fall off that, back, that wagon ever again, because it was such a dramatic difference. How did you first meet Megan Ramos? Oh, so it was really kind of interesting, actually. Um, I was on vacation. <laughs> I met Megan on the phone when I was in Atlanta in, um, in a museum there, or the aquarium. It was really kind of funny. So we had a quick little conversation, um, but I felt really good about meeting her. Um, she was very personable, and um, we had um, a lot of good conversation. Um, and then the next couple of times I met her, of course, it was just me and her. Um, and that's when we started to identify, you know, the nausea um, with my fastings, those kind of things. And she would help me um, give me some tips about that. Um, what were some of those tips? 
So number one is we started slower on my fasting. So we would, I just did 24 hour fasting for a while um, to kind of get my body into the fasting mode to understand what fasting is like, um, you know, and she says you have to kind of exercise your fasting brain, I guess. Um, your body has to learn how to fast, how to how to get used to it. We, we always sort of talk to our new patients and say things always get worse before they get better. And when we say that, we're referring to the, the keto flu, the induction period, uh, where people's bodies are transferring from carbohydrate fueling mode to fat fueling mode. They're two totally different factories in the body, you could say. And uh, when we're babies, we're, we develop in fat fueling mode. At some point in our lives, um, those of us with metabolic syndrome have transitioned into carb fueling mode. So for 10, 20, 30 plus years, depending on the individual, your fat fueling factory inside your body has been closed shut. And your carbohydrate fueling factory has been working steadily for many, many years and decades in some cases. So when you shut down the carb fueling factory and you try to fire up the fat fueling factory, it's not always a smooth transition. Imagine you have a, a beautiful car, uh, a, an old, uh, a good oldie, a good classic, sitting in a garage, covered up um, for 30 years you go to take off the cover and, and start it, well, it's going to be a little bit funky. Um, some funky fumes might come out of it, might take a little while to start, the battery might have gone dead. But eventually with a, a little love and a little grease and a good oil change and um, maybe a fresh battery, you're, you're good to go. Um, so it takes a little bit of work to get that car running. So it takes a little work in your body to get this fat fueling system running. For some people, um, they experience some downtime uh, for any, anywhere from a couple of days to a couple of weeks. And sometimes it can even take up to a couple of months before people start to feel better. So symptoms of the ketogenic flu are usually um, dizziness, nausea, headaches, um, the chills, uh, some mental fog. But if, if you can stick through it, it will get better. Some things I believe that determine uh, the duration of the ketogenic flu that you're going to experience or if you're going to experience a ketogenic flu at all, sort of determine on your, your previous diet. So someone like AK, who pretty much started off eating high carb, um, you know, after she was, after she was born, her whole life was high carb. Her whole life was fat fueling. She only knew carb fueling. Also, when I would do longer fast, and really it's at 48 hours that I get very nauseated, um, she recommended that maybe I eat half an avocado at 24 hours. Um, and that seemed to help a big amount for me. Um, and I don't know what it is about that, but um, that seems to help me get over the hump. Um, and then of course, um, drinking pickle juice or adding salt into my diet. Um, that seemed to help quite a bit. So with AK, you know, we really talked about the importance of um, sodium. We found that, you know, three to five milligrams of sodium a day really wasn't cutting it. Um, we started off at sort of, uh, sort of around five milligrams of sodium a day since she did have a previous history with keto flu, but that wasn't, uh, wasn't going so well um, with her. So we upped it a little bit to seven milligrams of sodium a day. And that sort of seemed to do the trick. So I, I went online and bought a whole bunch of pickle juice. It actually is pretty interesting. Off of Amazon, you could buy anything. Um, so I just bought the actual pickle juice itself. And um, I sip on that now when I, when I fast. And that seems to help quite a bit. 
So the pickle juice has a has a fairly high sodium content because you use pickles, vinegar, salt, um, water uh, in in the concoction. Um, so there's a, quite a lot of salt in it. It's tasty, and it's another vessel to help get the salt into the body. I love the idea of eating half an avocado 24 hours in. You know, if I don't eat supper or I eat separate the day before, the next day at supper time um, around that or a little bit later is when I'll eat the half avocado. So what came next? Probably two things. I started to add back um, exercise. And so I started doing something called Orange Theory. I don't know if you've heard of it before, but um, it's a pretty intensive exercise um, regimen. Um, it's and I do an hour twice a week, um, and I usually burn anywhere between five to six hundred calories. So it's pretty intense. You're doing rowing, you're doing running, you're doing weightlifting, and so I was having a hard time not being so hungry with my fasting and so that's when Megan started kind of helping me with how do I how do I manage my fasting around my workout schedule and how can I not feel so hungry after I exercise so what's your routine now So I basically get up at five o'clock in the morning to go do this exercise, but the the actual exercise time doesn't start until about 6.15, 6.30. And so what we did was she recommended maybe making a, or eating something early in the morning, like right when I wake up at five o'clock. She had noticed that a lot of people actually do better, especially women, um, with the hunger issue if they eat prior to working out and then fast afterwards. And so that has actually made a lot of difference for me as well. Um, so, so I've kind of changed those patterns um, with fasting around my exercise. And, and now I'm doing much, much better with the hunger. Any big plans for Christmas? Um, Actually, we are planning to not do a traditional Christmas per se in that we would have dressing and turkey and ham and all those kind of things. Um, A lot of times for Christmas, my stepdaughters and I and my husband will just do a really nice steak dinner. And so I think that that's what we're going to plan on doing um, is kind of doing filet mignons in the oven, kind of like Ruth's Chris style, um, wrapped in bacon and and doing some asparagus and having a nice salad, um, etc. So I just won't eat the bread. Is the rest of your family down with keto? You know, I get my um, stepchildren every other weekend and some weeks during um, Christmas or Thanksgiving, those kind of holidays. So my children don't necessarily go on a ketogenic diet, but um, they are understanding with me being on a ketogenic diet. And so we serve... um, food that goes along with a ketogenic diet and then they might add in some bread or something to eat with it. So um, it actually has been pretty flexible uh, with my family and our eating habits. And how about your husband? Is he on board with all this? So my husband is supportive with this, definitely. Um, And it actually works out for us if I don't eat supper because he doesn't get home until seven, eight o'clock at night anytime anyway so a lot of times we're eating supper separately so that part works out really well Um, he is very supportive he does not do any kind of fasting and he's not on a ketogenic diet but he needs to be and so when um, the new year happens I am really going to try to get him to come on board with me and try to do this as a couple how about your mom now it turns out she was right all along You know, my mom is very supportive. It's kind of interesting. Again, I alluded to when I went low fat, she always would argue with me that my body needed fat, etc. Well, she grew up in the 50s. And I think this was more of a lifestyle that people 
practiced back in the olden days. And so it was nothing to her to skip a meal when she was young or skip two meals. And and in fact, she was fasting and didn't really realize she was doing that. That was just a way to maintain her weight. And so she doesn't give me a hard time about it at all. And how about at work, at the doctor's office? My colleagues are completely the opposite. You know, I, I mentioned that I'm a physician. And if I talk about this, um, in my office or in my, you know, everyday work, people look at me like I'm crazy. Um, They have learned through medical school that fasting is unhealthy, that, you know, fat is bad, that salt is bad, carbs are good, etc. And so I find that I get judged very easily in the medical world. And so I have to pick and choose who I talk about my lifestyle with because I don't want to get shunned, basically. People think that I am somewhat anorexic sometimes when I talk about it. Um, And so in their mind, I guess... By fasting, I'm doing my body harm when in reality, I think the science is starting to come back and support fasting is not a bad thing. And, you know, low fat has been a bad thing and high fat is a good thing. We're starting to see that carbohydrates generate inflammation. And maybe that is the reason for cardiovascular disease and not necessarily the high fat diet. Um, It's kind of funny how science sometimes finds its way back to where we were years and years and years ago. Do you find it at all easy to speak to strangers about this? No, I do. I I do talk to people about um, about what I do in certain situations, you know, Um, and I offer them the book to read. because I think that that's a nice starting point to teach to teach why this actually is based on good science and not bad science. Um, I think that as time goes on and I have good successes in, in my life and this becomes a lifestyle for me, that I will be a more vocal proponent for, for this lifestyle, for the ketogenic diet and for fasting. So how much weight have you lost and over how long? It's been probably eight to nine months and I've lost 40 pounds. Wow, that's fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. And what was your longest fast? To be honest, it has not been very much more than 48 hours. Um, I might, I think I've gotten to 72 a couple of times. And what's your goal? My goal is to be a size eight to 10 the rest of my life. That's what I want. I'm not really focusing so much on the weight. Um, It's really the size of clothes. And I would be happy with that. Um, you know, I, I feel pretty healthy when I'm at that weight. Um, my, my joints don't hurt as much, um, you know, and I can exercise and have good energy. Um, so if I could maintain that for the rest of my life, I would be a happy camper. Megan always tells me to take my inches because sometimes I do get obsessed about the weight um, and I will, you know, fluctuate. My body just does that. Um, And she always says, pay attention to your to your inches, um, because that really truly is the telltale sign that you're losing weight. So AK has committed to making the ketogenic and fasting lifestyle a lifestyle for life. You can see throughout my lifetime, um, I've waxed and waned. I get really serious into dieting and then I fall off the wagon. Um, I get really serious back into dieting, try something different and then fall off the wagon. And never once when I was doing this did I make it a true lifestyle. So that's what I'm really going to have to try to focus 
all my energies on is to make this an actual lifestyle. And I do think that fasting works very well um, for lifestyles. We all know Christmas comes around the corner or Thanksgiving or July 4th. And there's going to be times where I have carbs in my life, you know, or I splurge, you know, that's what we do. We celebrate. Um, food is such a social thing. But the cool thing about fasting is that after that occurs, I can get back into a fast and never miss a beat. Um, and I've really learned about that. That's a, that's a good thing about fasting is that, you know, if something happens in life and you do celebrate or have a splurge, doing a fast right after that helps you just get back right into that lifestyle. And so I think that that's going to be a key for me going forward um, is that I'm really going to be able to hopefully do that and, and make this a lifestyle change so I can do this forever. And that's our story for this week. You've been listening to the Obesity Code podcast, lessons and stories from the Intensive Dietary Management Program. The Obesity Code podcast is brought to you by 2Keto LLC, who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. And you can support our mission by making a monthly pledge, no matter how small, at patreon.2keto.com. I'm Carl Franklin. We'll see you next time.